This is the Diabolique webcast, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead. On this episode, we're going to discuss James Cameron's 1984 film, The Terminator. And joining me to do so, of course, is David Kleiler. David's the former artistic director of the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts. And also joining us is Jean-Paul Ouellette. Now, this is going to be a special episode because JP, as many of you know, because he's been a, big, a guest on the podcast a number of times, um, was the second assistant director on The Terminator. So um, we're going to start things off with me and David and JP talking about the film. And then after that, JP and I are going to get into a more detailed discussion on the making of the movie. James Cameron's The Terminator. Kind of like the Terminator, if you think about it. Get off of Ted's soul. He, he will not him. stop until everyone is dead. <laughs> so, anyway. D- um, David, so just continuing a conversation that, that gets into the Terminator. You had said earlier that um, you, you, you were having this conversation about... Um, God, what, what, you know, great films from... What, 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 are the, like, what are the great films from 1970... And then I got to thinking, like, well, everybody thinks 1984 is freaking loaded with great films, just up and down, you know? Well, I think, well, it is kind of interesting when you talk about, you know, The Terminator. Uh, here it is a film that was sort of not put together in the conventional way in terms of, in terms of production. And nor did it, um, it didn't have the sta- standard studio patterns. Mm-hmm. And so here's this film that came out, it's sort of a surprising success. JP has all the numbers on this one. It made $40 million. Yeah, it made, well, 38-something, which was uh, a shocker. Uh, mm. <laughs> of course, this also was the year of, you know, you have to remember, this is Beverly Hills Cop and Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. And Orion had a whole batch of, you know, this was Orion's big year. They had Amadeus Oh yeah. and Terminator, which were yeah. their two biggest hits of the year. Wow. Oh, my God. Two films is contrasted from the same studio. You can't really say this is an Orion film. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like, like, wow. Because, um, as JP has noted, I'm going to elaborate on that, this, this, there's a certain kind of way that the film does a mixture of genres. It's a very tightly done film. I mean, it, mm. it's great to sit through. Part of the success had to be, apart from the fact that it's a good film, it struck a chord of difference, I think, with, with people. Right. Well, I think, you know, I see it as it is a multi-genre film, which and it does jump from genre to genre. It's a, you know, it, it's got romance, it's got horror, it's got sci-fi, it's got action. And mm-hmm. in, in many ways, the two big previous ones were Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn and Star Wars, which were big mixes of genres. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a horror one done in that style, which made it unique. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny, though. I, I think the, the first one comes off as more as a horror film, and I never really saw it that way. I always just figured it was like science fiction action. Well, as far as, yes, it's scary, it's a monster, and it's a monster that's out to kill people, Yeah, which is a yeah. horror film. I mean, it is a, it's a horror monster movie as well. Hmm. But it's also, as all the makers of a very good thriller, if that, mm-hmm. if, uh, but a thriller can cross genres. There's westerns that can be thrillers. Right. Uh, but I, I think if I went to see it, and I did go to see it, I have a, I'm a sucker for anything that's labeled thriller, like whether it was a science fiction or a 
because I know I probably wouldn't have gone to see it. I'm not a big fan of time travel movies. I have enough trouble dealing with the present. I don't need to deal with you know 40 years from now, and uh, speculate what might happen. And um, mm. but as a um, well put together thriller that it was unique, uh, yeah, that would be my, my the appeal. And uh, mm. let me ask with Schwarzenegger, was his character in Conan all ironic, or was he just the brute hero in the thing? Technically, uh, the the big twist on Conan is that Conan is the single character who doesn't believe in the supernatural. That he is a natural being to which no, nothing magic is special. Hmm. He doesn't need magic to win. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't need, you know, like many horror uh, heroes in, um, in mythology, he doesn't need magic to win. He doesn't need to get the magic sword. He doesn't need that. It's that he is so natural a human being that he's so basic that and he's and his god doesn't care about him that he must do it himself which makes him a very unique character in that way which is also why the books were so so fascinating mm. Mm. i was going to think of in 1984 when we went to see a an arnold schwarzenegger film and i think it's important that you pointed out that originally he was supposed to be the hero of the right. film and he ended up being the villain. But yeah. what were our expectations of what it was like to see an Arnold Schwarzenegger film when this came out? I, um, I do know that my dominant image of Schwarzenegger was really from his documentary, Pumping Iron. He was this muscular guy with a big sense of humor and irony. I started reading about gaining weight and uh, weightlifting some magazines, and uh, I saw Arnold's picture. When I saw him from all those angles, every angle the shots were taken from, he looked good. And I said, well, that's, that's the way I want to look. My recollection, I don't, I don't recall that prior to The Terminator, there was, there was anything like Arnold Schwarzenegger's physique in film. This was almost bordering on absurd, absurdity. He's so huge at the time. Well, we ha I mean, we had gone through the sword and sandal era. Remember, we had the Steve Reeves. We had those, yeah. you know, big muscular. And in fact, Arnold had already played what Hercules in New York. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I, you know, this is like his his fourth film. I mean, he went from Pumping Iron to I believe Hercules in New York, where they actually dubbed him. <laughs> yeah, to to Conan, where he took on a persona that fascinated an audience. So I mean, he obviously was gaining. Um, acceptance mm -hmm. on the screen. And obviously, if you look at the ads for Terminator, the, the name Schwarzenegger is bigger than the name Terminator. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, is that, right? that it was, you know, his that, name. That was weird seeing the, such a long name at that time, you know, on the movie poster and the titles. Like, maybe years prior to this, they would have asked the guy to change his name. I totally you know? agree. I totally agree. I think he, but his fame, his fame as a, as a, um, health and, and mu muscular, whatever, he-man, you know, yeah. uh, performer preceded any any of his, his movies, so they couldn't change his name. His name at that point had cachet, despite the fact that it's you know, was not anglicized in any way. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. he wouldn't have been, uh, in another era, but if he hadn't been known through Pumping Iron, he could have been called Tab Hunter or Rock Hudson. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, that's pretty true of a lot of actors today. I, I mean, this is, what, 30 years ago this happened. 
But would somebody named Greta Gerwig really uh, have a, be able to continue a career with that name? Mm. We'd go to see a film with a Greta, somebody named Greta Gerwig. Kind of makes you wonder who has changed their name, but you'd be able to find out online right away. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. You know, there's no covering it. David, I'm curious. So when Terminator came out, did you think of this film as the type of film that you were into or was it just a curiosity? Because I know like listeners of the podcast know that like you're more into, um, I don't know, like 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 you have more of an art film perspective or a desire to see those sorts of movies as opposed to B movies. Oh, yeah. Although we did very much just enjoy discussing um, Village of the Damned. Well, I would have for me to have gone to it, which is not you see, it's not my kind of movie. Uh, to begin with, uh, it either would have had to have had really strong word of mouth yeah. or a, enough sense of, of difference to make me go, because I'm not a big fan of studio manufactured films. This one doesn't feel that way. And I would have perceived it going in, it didn't feel that way. Mm. Uh, there weren't the usual elements, like I, for example, wouldn't go to see Captain America, you know, just wouldn't do it. It's prefab film, I assume. This one is, doesn't feel prefabbed. And it was pretty. I thought. I thought it was strikingly original at the time. Although I've, after talking with JP, who I should tell listeners if they aren't don't don't already know, JP was second assistant director on the Terminator. Second. Uh, second unit. Uh, second unit. Second unit. <laughs> action director. director. I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, in talking with you, you had informed me. I did not know this that it was inspired by a uh, story by Harlan Ellison. Mm, I, I wasn't aware of that. No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> no. I thought it, no, did, it was inspired it by a whole batch of different things. One of them, probably more importantly, was uh, was Cyborg uh, twenty eighty six, which was a time travel, which was also a time travel. Obviously, you know, but they with, added the credit with, at the end of the film, saying with gratitude well, I think or this something is, to Harlan. Ellison. We should talk about this separately okay. from, from this right, because so that's I, a you know that that's, that's sort of an insider's thing. No, Har sure, sure. technically Harlan, uh, you know, was maybe one of the many influences but uh, was not directly mm -hmm. uh, in any way but um no but the trick was when it was released it was it was uh in october what was it october yeah so it was a thanksgiving movie it was a uh halloween era film yeah it was and, yeah it was uh, a late october release yeah uh, and uh and did really well its first weekend I mean, mm. it was a knockout for its first weekend, and it didn't have. I mean, its competition wasn't that strong at the time. I just remember thinking this: this to me, this this idea was was original to me. This this bad guy who would not stop was terrific. Just let me go. Listen and understand that Terminator is out there. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse, or fear, and it absolutely will not stop, ever, until you are dead. Well, the movement you of know. the film does not stop either, not just because of him, but the film, whoever was responsible for the pacing of the film, uh, you get the obligatory uh, pause for a moment for the love scene, but the love scene uh, where things do slow down, but in the love scene, uh, the love scene, uh, you know, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the story if it weren't for that love of, scene. Yeah, it does play into it. It really does. It's not just sort of like, a, like when I was going to see movies in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, you always knew there was going to be a scene in it where we would go and get a popcorn break. Uh, that yeah. would be always to oh God, here comes the stuff. And when you're you know a, a teenage boy, uh, you, you sort of expect 
be able to get a break to go to the concession stand. This film really, it was R-rated when it came out, right? I believe it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so it's a question of whether or not people under 18 could get into it in 1984. If you look at... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think once again, theaters were looser. (laughs) The Terminator has a huge fan base. And some what I think happens when films have large fan bases is they get away from taking a look at what the how uh, the actual film. It's like there's Star Wars, which is massively huge, and then there's the actual film, and then you can review the actual film as to whether or not it's good. That's you know great or has these interesting qualities. Is there anything about the Terminator that like as a film? just level-headed in that respect is is terrific about its filmmaking. I just think, well, for me, I, you know, it was an adrenaline rush of a film. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, Mad Max did it last year for me anyway, an yeah. adrenaline rush of a film. Yeah. But it is interesting. I love doing these podcasts because it gives me a chance to reflect. This has been 30 years now. And I remember yeah. coming in, not having seen the podcast or uh, the Terminator in, in 30 years, confusing parts of it with the story of Terminator 2 mm. uh, and remembering the Schwarzenegger character differently. And at first I was sort of put off, oh, wait a minute, there's more humor. I've missed the humor in the, uh, the Terminator of T2. Mm-hmm. And there was another little bit of a bias about, uh, I sort of, at that point, was taking Richard Linklater on it. He was premiering his first film, um, Slacker. And he went into this course taught by uh, this guy who says there's no such thing as a good Hollywood film. And Richard Linklater um, uh, was in there. So what was your favorite film of the year? And then he said T2. So I was sort of biased <laughs> by that, going back to CT1. And then on reflection and with conversations, T1 is good as a film. Yeah. Uh, it's tighter than T2 in, in memory. And it just simply has the kind of thing one looks for in a good thriller. Yeah. You know, it's tight. It's relentless, as as is the sort of the, the pace of the film sort of matches the temperament of the Terminator. I He's think at the stop. time it was breaking a law because of its relentlessness. Like the audience needs to breathe; they need to have a, a moment where you can, you know, relax. And and at that time, I think films were being like, you know, we're delivering more. We're we're keeping the tension ramped up. I think this is the the this is part of the whole move of the low-budget genre film into studio movies. In oh, interesting. That, so had this been made in its standard way as a low-budget film, it could not have packed this much material or this much action in into its time. A low-budget film ends up having action set pieces and then filler because they don't have the money to do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas this takes a low-budget film and makes it relentless, much in the way a low-budget piranha became Jaws, uh, or that a low-budget... Uh, Halloween? No. Ho- well, Hall- yeah, Halloween was still a low-budget film in some ways. It still looks like a low-budget film. But, uh, really no, actually, I was going to refer yeah. to the other one that was powerful in changing the industry was Alien. Oh, yeah. So that you took, yeah. essentially, uh, a low-budget screenplay, by actually by a man who had been writing a whole batch of low budget films and is a great writer but had been sort of stuck in low budget Uh, and you take that and you put eight million dollars into it and suddenly you've got a masterpiece of sci-fi and a masterpiece of terror Mm. because they could spend more money per minute 
to make everything work. And in many ways, that's the trick about Terminator is it takes a number of different genres and then has the money to spend to make sure each one gets each moment gets enough time and effort and creative back um, back help mm-hmm. to make it really work. Um, and once again, you know, what you can't do as a low budget filmmaker, you cannot constantly have chases and action and, and effects going on the whole time. You've got to, you've got to stretch it a little bit. Mm. So this Mm. one is another example of that move from low budget genre films to taking the money, giving them to a studio and blowing them up into big event action, uh, you know, effect pieces. You know what I also think is interesting? David was, had mentioned looking back on this film and, and 30 years later. And now, now that we have the sequels and, and the CGI-heavy um, Terminator Genesis, I th- felt like after watching the original Terminator after Genesis, the practical effects in the first film were just really impressive. It's almost like, I kind of wish they had done that now. I kind of wish like they hadn't put so much CGI into the current version of, of the Terminator. And uh, the, the original is very impressive uh, for its practical effects, well, especially th- the future sequences. Well, I think this has uh, a lot to really, do with, uh, with just the, the whole, uh, and maybe David will weigh in on this one, in that movie, the big event movies have become adult cartoons. I mean, literally, there's so much CGI uh, so that it's point. almost an anime. I mean, people are doing things that they yeah. physically can't do. Just the effects like, are no longer magical illusions. We know that they're effect. You know, we know yeah. that they're CGI. So it's in many ways, it has turned. You know, you spend 120 million or 400 million on a movie. Yeah. What you're doing is you're paint. You're repainting the world with CGI into being essentially an animated cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, and that's. That that Terminator was the end of you know is part of the end of that era when they you know oh wow can we can we do this without having to cheat afterwards there is there is uh, there's a drop off in all this CGI about um, that, that that it's not it's not convincing in other words I don't think we we accept the reality of this the way we accept the reality of actually hiring four hundred extras to be in a film and they're standing there on that day and you film it and it's a different sort of like amazement that I don't quite know how to uh, explain. Well, I do know that I, if I were, what would draw me out to one of these CGI thing, they have to be told it was so dazzling. Uh, it does something different. Now you sort of expect it. Let's just take a film that I did go to see just to see what goes on with the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 3d um, um, uh, 300 Spartans where the only thing that was interested in, in the film at all were Eva Green's breasts. That was the only thing that was interesting in the film. Mm-hmm. Everything else was CGI. Don't forget, in the era that I saw these spectacles, and you know, you talk about the sandal and spear, or whatever the call thing. Yeah, they, that, um, that, that was a, But you would have yeah, these, you know, big Hollywood projects, Cecil B. DeMille with a cast of thousands. You, that would be part of the ad. You, you really did see a cast of thousands, and you believed it was a cast of thousands. That all started with D.W. Griffith stuff in the silent era. And mm-hmm. so that continued until the age of CGI. So you have to say, oh, my God, look at all those people. I just saw a film, on, uh, a silent film about Noah's Ark. Uh, and 
and it, and it turns out during the making of the film, three people drowned. Uh, 44 yeah. were injured. Wait a minute, this doesn't happen now with CGI. I mean, on the one hand, I'm seeing see the yeah. damage. On the other hand, I think the CGI films that I've seen are less awe-inspiring yeah. than the old ones that I saw. It's not that they maybe just make better, but there's a difference in the quality. Um, or the randomness of the images. I, I think with CGI, you control everything. And then with like explosions in the Terminator or, or uh, uh, I don't know, stuff blowing up, uh, you, you get what you photographed. That's your one. You blow up the car. That's your that's your shot. And with CGI, you can artistically blow it up, which so often happens in the in Terminator Genesis. Genesis. All the future scenes are so very, you know, they're, they're beautiful, but they're so composed, you know? We go to a Megaplex and see about eight previews now. Seven of them. Yeah. Seven of the previews in the two and a half minutes they allow for the previews will have car crashes and explosions. And you usually can get about three car crashes crammed into a preview, and uh, you can get about <laughs> uh, six explosions crammed in. And they all look alike. Uh, yeah. They all look, but people go, they, they like it, because there's, there's nothing that's sort of like, hey, this is different. Yeah. I mean, truly, the, the, uh, having the star of this film be truly menacing, yeah. uh, that's a little bit, takes a little bit of an adjustment. It isn't like where there's a hero and the monster stalking him, and oh my God, you, you root for the hero. In this one, the thing is really the awesomeness of the Schwarzenegger character. Yeah. I mean, those low angle shots of him with his shades on the motorcycle. Oh, well, no, I, the trick was that to a great extent, especially, and we'll talk about this later, uh, was that part of the crew was making Arnold the Terminator the hero of the movie was to shoot him and portray him as a heroic character, i.e. making him a fascinating villain. Even though we have a creature who has no, 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 no human sense whatsoever, mm -hmm. but still his desire to do this, his ability, his ability to change and think and, and come up with ideas becomes fascinating and yeah. we're really interested in even though he's terrifying and scary and the whole thing we're fascinated by him in fact probably more fascinated than we are in the hero and we see his thinking process through the animation which right is sort of interesting and well, i think he'll oh go ahead david I'm no, sorry. i just think of ben Turner, it is interesting the way the film is constructed because um maybe that love scene that i sort of like okay what do we do with mm -hmm. that but um the idea of the role of the woman here is yeah, different I was going to mention uh, Hamilton. And uh, you've talked a lot about it, uh, JP. You want to elaborate on because Well, I, I think that, um, you know, remember that this is also coming out of an era when, um, oddly enough, these obviously Cameron and, and Gail Ann Hurd came out of the um, uh, Roger Corman camp and had, had training there. And Corman at the time was promoting um, women as filmmakers. And this had been part of his whole thing mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, Slumber Party Massacre and a lot. Mm -hmm. And there were a whole batch of women directors showing up, especially in out of Corman's camp. Um, and I think Gail is a good example of that. I, Gail was the producer, right? Now, Gail was the producer okay. um, and has gone on to become quite a producer, mm. um, including The Walking Dead, which yes. is very impressive. Uh, so... Her influence was to reevaluate the female character in the film and amp her up. 
So with that, and I don't think this was as much Cameron as it was Gail Ann Hurd's influence sure. on the film. Um, in fact, probably the rewrite. Um, I would say there's, there's like Princess Leia level of aggressive, but then there's maybe next step would be Sigourney Weaver and Alien towards the end, right? And then and then just but but once it again, but it was in, but the trick the is here we actually see a dynamic female character arc. I mean, it's really dynamic. And there is an yes. arc. Yes. Yeah, it really is. And, and we do see, and I, it's one of the best things about the film, is that she is the single most human person. And, and she, she, it is a personality change. It's a, it's a change of, she changes. Right, absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and it has a whole batch of factors. Love, maternal instinct, um, overcoming one's own fear, uh, finding one's place as opposed to, uh, I'm just a waitress to becoming... A heroic character. So, was it John that sent you here? I volunteered. Why? There's a chance to meet the legend. Sarah Connor. Taught her son to fight. Organize. Prepare from when he was a kid. When you were in hiding before the war. You're talking about things that I haven't done yet in the past tense. It's driving me crazy. Are you sure you have the right person? I'm sure. Come on, do I look like the mother of the future? I mean, am I tough? Organized? I can't even balance my checkbook. Look, Reese. I didn't ask for this honor, and I don't want it, any of it. Your son gave me a message to give to you, made me memorize it. Thank you, Sarah, for your courage through the dark years. I can't help you with what you must soon face, except to say that the future is not set. You must be stronger than you imagine you can be. You must survive, or I will never exist. There are all these all these emotional things that she goes through to make her character what it is at the end of the film. Mm. And, and yes, Dave, David talks about the lull for the love scene, but remember, mm. this is a film that fascinated women. It that even, had a huge female yeah, audience. Yeah, and I, I think like Kyle Reese's character is this link. I think it's fascinating in the film when he tells her that she's supposed to be like this, you know, the character that she is very far from becoming is presented with what she will become, and she's like, "Give me a friggin' break! This is right. too far." Yeah, no, the, yes, know? she does not believe his his image of her is her later image, and he's telling her he's telling a waitress that he he thinks of her as a hero, and she has no idea what he's talking about. That's true. Yeah, but watching her development is is the important part is one of the most important parts of the film. Mm -hmm. Although, yeah, because in some ways predestined for her, but. Uh, there is the development in her character. There is, I think, the only character with an arc in the film. Mm. There's no arc in, in Arnold Schwarzenegger, that's no. for sure. <laughs> Definitely I, not. I, she's so scarred by what happens at the factory at the end of the film that it just becomes a part of her. She's got to be this other type of person, you know, in order to fight these machines. All right, but she, but she also finds. I mean, remember that during this is uh, prior to that. She's the one who ends up driving. She's the one who drags him out of from underneath the truck. She's the oh, one who sorry, hauls yeah. him down the street. Yeah. She becomes, you know, we see her developing 
through that whole section um, mm-hmm. going. And even though she's terrified at the end, we've seen her bravery up to this point. And yes, it goes back and forth, but mm-hmm. she's definitely developing a character that's strong. And we're watching it as it happens. The, uh, I don't know how to segue out of this. So, um, because because you, you had concluded that, so what could I say? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We can't um, segue into the... Uh, into yeah, the, uh, I, uh, the yeah. No, but this, is, but this also, ha- I, think, I think her character has a lot to do with its success yeah. a- as far as its Oh, release. there's such a great uh, um, confrontation of opposites, this waitress versus an unstoppable machine. Right. You know, it's... Well, I mean, once again, now we're going to see, since then we've seen tons of that. But I mean, because this also triggered a whole different, you know, style of of storytelling. Yeah. Um, But once again, this also has to do with when you, when they made the movie, they did not expect this, the, the success of it. In fact, one is it went, it went over budget, which Mm -hmm. upset everything and terrified everybody involved. Um, None of the people who made the film were convinced that it was that great a movie. Everybody's yeah. spouse at the cast and crew screening was just screaming because it was the greatest movie they'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. But we had no idea. And the trick was that, especially for the male part of the cast and crew, were surprised that spouses and girlfriends loved the movie. And part of that was this female character. Mm-hmm. And that also has to do with how a film makes money. Obviously, when it gets to the theater uh, and they, you say it's an action film and it's got a monster and, not, you know, girls don't want to go see this. Mm-hmm. Women don't want to go see this. But suddenly you start hearing, you know, a couple of, of women go to this film and start spreading the word that there's a great female character. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it's a date movie. And that's why part of the reason why it did so well. In fact, I mean, literally, this is a film where uh, let me look at the. Uh, I actually have some note here. Yeah. Um, so it was released wide. The second week, they started lowering the number of um, theaters. Is, yeah. By the third week, they'd lowered it more. And then suddenly, it's making a lot more money per theater. Mm-hmm. And so they started build, you know, adding theaters again. So this was obviously something where word of mouth was propelling it. And part of the reason for the, for the big money was that it wasn't all guys going to this movie. Yeah. That's interesting, and would have been sort of unprecedented too. I think. You know, it's it, it sort of brought to mind that we haven't really talked about Kyle Reese's character, and I think briefly, I see him as a very as ultimately tragic. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows it's a suicide mission. He knows he just has to keep her alive, mm. but he's doomed. He's doomed from you know the moment he makes the decision to do this. John Connor gave me a picture of you once. I didn't know why at the time. It's very old. Torn. Faded. You were young like you are now. You seemed just a little sad. I used to always wonder what you were thinking at that moment. I memorized every line, every curve. I came across time for you, Sarah. I love you. I always have. 
So I see him as kind of like this uh, sad, tragic character that just kind of has to pass a baton, and then his use has been, then he's done. Yeah, no, I you do you do start wondering how much um, the essentially in the future you do start to wonder, and this is paradoxes of time and and yeah, you know, science fiction is how much his son told him about what happened in the past. You know, so mm. so yes, the more he would have known, the more ultimately tragic it would have been mm. that he actually went back knowing he would have a short life and die. I think as guys, we look at his character and we think he's admirable. He's chivalrous, you know, he's a stand up guy. I don't think, I, I don't know whether the film asks us to think about that. I know that in terms of a plot point, here he is. You know, I keep saying, if John Waters had done this film, uh, what would have happened with the whole kinkiness of his coming back and he comes back uh, so they can give birth to the person who's going to save the world. John Waters had, <laughs> had done this. What's going to go on here? Is, is it conscious on his part? I got to fuck this woman uh, uh, in, in order to save the world. If John Waters had done this, Divine would have been the Terminator. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, a lot of ways. There, there's no question about it. I think a lot of things. There's If... Because it doesn't. One of the things that's what I like about the the adrenaline rush aspect of the film, you don't really, and there's not a lot of exposition in the film. Um, you really don't want to spend time thinking like, well, wait a minute, does this any of this make sense? He is hanging out with his son forty years from now, but he's he's dead. Wait a minute, how did all this happen? You know, this. David, this, I'm laughing because I want to take back what I said. If Divine, if John Waters had done this movie, Divine would have been Sarah Connor. <laughs> so, okay, but uh, no. I, one of the fun things about the film is that yeah. it po like good science fiction. It poses a whole batch of fun questions, um, which, and we'll talk about time travel later. But um, <laughs> no, it, it poses a lot of interesting questions that, yes, are buried under the action and excitement of the film, but are that fun thing for sci-fi people like myself. Uh, to walk away from the film and go, ah, I need to talk with you about this. I need mm -hmm. to figure this out. It is a smart film. I mean, as far as the story, it's logical and it's smart. It has lots of elements to which you want to say, and this is a great movie, I want to go back and see it again. I do. I think, like going to see Mad Max last year, like second and third time, uh, I wanted to just went, we'd go back for the adrenaline rush. We just watched a bunch of us just watched the science fiction uh, film Gattaca, which really forces one to think about the issues that... While I'm, you're watching the film. Yes. Right. And I'm not sure uh, Terminator does. And I'm not saying that as a fault. I think, it, you know, I still, that's why I still regard the film primarily as a thriller. Mm -hmm. but, but it poses... But see, the trick is, it, uh, what I'm saying is it poses questions that you don't think of until you walk out of the theater. Okay. And that's what I think is so fascinating. Yeah. Is that that it gives you and it gives you this desire to say, well, it was fascinating and all that, but actually beneath it, there's a lot of really cool stuff, which a lot of big flashy movies have none of that. Mm -hmm. See, my, my my sense of the cool stuff is on reflection, of course, uh, the difference in the film in terms of the way it develops. A conventional person going in, me going into a movie, which starts an action star, you would expect at some point in the film, him to have develop an ounce of humanity. Uh, one of the things that makes the film so effective is that doesn't happen at all. And I think that catches us a little bit off guard. You know, I'm mm -hmm. trying to think back 30 years ago. And then what then catches us off guard is the arc, uh, the narrative arc, the character arc of the woman. 
And so that there is no arc to the Schwarzenegger character. I don't think, you know, he's the star of the film. We do expect more like what well, he is in T2. Mm-hmm. We do expect something uh, of, of that and it just never happens. And I think, I think, you know, I, have to, I can't remember what I really thought 30 years ago, mm. but I would expect something because I think most of the way we get conditioned by these kinds of melodramas that to, to, wait a minute, there's got to be a human touch here someplace. And it just it relentlessly Terminator never happens. Fascinatingly incapable I think that's part of, of the film's that. power. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, what? I think that's part of the film's power. Mm. Well, David, thanks for taking the time to talk. My and pleasure. My pleasure, too. Hey, everybody. That's the first part of our conversation. At this point, we decided to switch things up. So from here forward, it's going to be just me and JP talking about the making of the film, getting into stories and more particulars and things like that. So let's get on with it. Hope you enjoy it. I got this. I got this film book the other day. Um, it's uh, an in, it's called. It's basically called uh, an introduction to film by Alex Cox. And on the f- at the beginning of it, he uses a quote from Picasso, and I'm paraphrasing. And Picasso said something like, "When critics get together, they talk about theory. When painters get together, they talk about turpentine." So I got to thinking. Well, there's a difference here. There's a difference between the people who make movies. And the people who write about them, the people who, who talk about them a lot. I mean, I know the people who make movies obviously talk about them a lot and a lot, but they talk about their their perspectives are very different. So like you've worked on films, I've worked on films. There's two sets of conversations going on here. There's like the whole, I gotta get work, uh, I gotta, you know, oh, you know, things are very I got you know we're making this movie. We're talking about oh the the lamp, the lights, the camera, uh, where people are standing. Do I have my tape? I'm a camera well, type of thing. <laughs> well, the, no. and, then there, and then there's the but you know, I, there's but the practical aspect, actually, and then there's the theory at the at the end of everything. No, I think the filmmakers still talk about the theory uh, in a different way, and often the interesting thing about critics, uh, critics try to project ideas over the film. And what was meant by the film? Well, whereas oh, yes, filma- yes but- filmmakers talk about the effect of the film on the audience, i.e., and this includes philosophical ideas, it um, affects, mm-hmm. uh, you know, literally those things that affect an audience, whether it's emotional or intellectual, but mostly emotional. I mean, yeah. mo- mostly the, the filmmaker is interested in a, in a physical reaction from uh-huh. an audience. Well, my, my point is, is also what I was thinking is, is that from, from the people who are listening to this, from their perspective, what's more interesting, the, the theory or the fact that we'll have a conversation about what are the elements that went into to making the film? Well, I think you know? well he, the easy one for, is it, for, for the people listening it, to it this feels weirdly is that like, they, they can hear the critic anytime. Yeah. Hearing behind the scenes on a film is not that common. Yeah. You know, as to why was it made, what was it about, what 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 were the creative forces that were brought into it, and why? You know, and then when you when you're talking about a film that you've made, and I've I've had other people say to me, well, you know, these are anecdotal things. I don't think of them as being anecdotal. I think of these are like these are life stories that are remembered, and for some reason they held particular weight. You know, 
Well, I was an apprentice. I started in Hollywood as, a, as an apprentice. Yeah, yeah. You know, I figured so, I, so I wanted lot, to get right to so, like, so, how did you get this? This? <laughs> how did you start doing this? You know, well, I I was lucky. Uh, I was actually going to go into advertising. I had degrees in uh, literature and uh, graphic design. So I was actually going to go into advertising, which is a good mix of those two, where I'd always made, since I was 14, I've been making movies for the fun of it, just among friends. My assumption is like eight millimeter. We started in eight millimeter. Yeah. Uh, in, when I was in prep school, I actually went and took a course in 16 millimeter photography Wow! from Austin Lamont, the, uh, the uh, critic huh. of, huh. I forgot what, he was, uh, uh, Film Comment. I think he was the editor of Film Comment at some hmm. point. But anyway, um, so I learned news photography, and we then obviously moved to 16 millimeter when I got to college, um, and went to Beloit College, which didn't have a film department. You at went all. to Beloit. I went to Beloit. My sister Marnie went to Beloit. Yeah, but so I was there for three years, <laughs> so, and they didn't have they didn't have a film. Division. And John Tesh went to Beloit. I know. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. No, no, I'm that's sorry, JP. No, no, I shouldn't um, be interjecting. Uh, so they all they had was a 16 millimeter camera period yeah, yeah. and every once a year i would make um i would do one of my english classes i would do something on on film hmm. um, in fact they and they had to be silent because they didn't have any sound stuff or anything but when i got it so then i switched and got a degree in graphic design and illustration from mass art hmm. and it was at mass art that i was lucky enough to uh, we made a, a sort of Twilight Zoney film, and we had this old older man who uh, played our vi uh, main character victim. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, he was the New England distributor for a guy for a hot, famous Hollywood filmmaker, Roger Russ Meyer. Right. Okay. So Ru since Russ Meyer was <laughs> Russ Meyer was absolutely yeah. you know he was a one man army. Um, in that um, huh. when he had a guy who went around to all the theaters to deliver the films and pick them up and make, you know, deal with it. So this was the guy. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say if David was here, David would know. But anyway, so through him, we also, you know, I was, I was lucky in college that we got all to, to go to all these premieres in Boston. Huh. Um, wow. But anyway, so, so when I decided I hated my job as working uh, copy at an advertising agency, I ran into him, and he said he could get me a job in Hollywood. Hmm. So I literally moved without a job, without guarantee of a job, with a good friend of mine, um, Bruce Pasternak, who had, we'd been in school together. We moved to Hollywood, and um, I worked for Russ Meyer. Hmm. And, wow. um, but the, one of the tricks Wait, was I, about anecdotes was that a lot of the teaching that you get from a mentor is anecdotes. And anecdotes, good anecdotes actually have a purpose, a point. They're actually teaching you something. Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't tell a bad, uh, an anecdote with no meaning whatsoever. I feel that way. And, sure. and so I learned both from Russ and then from Morrison Wells through anecdotes. I mean, you should also tell listeners that you worked for Orson Wells. Well, yeah, I was very lucky. I worked, I, so I worked uh, for Russ for almost a year, I guess. Uh, then through Russ, um, I was introduced to um, Gary Graver, who was cor one of the Corman uh, cinematographers. Yeah. And did so I did an ultra-low-budget Al Adamson movie uh, oh with him. Oh, my God. 
Wow. And there's a, there's a name from the. Well, and, and started to started to learn because uh, who is in the cast? George Lazenby, uh, Harold Sakata, odd job, uh, Terry Moore, um, and I think Aldo Ray. Al Adamson. Did, did he do that movie Circus Magic? Uh, could well have. Oh, my God. He's best known for Jesse's Girls. He was so proud. It's the only film that at that time had ever been on television. Wow. Out of his 20 films. <laughs> so, but, um, but anyway, so yeah. and, and through Gary, Gary sidelined. Um, as Orson Welles cinematographer for on the the other side of the wind on the other side of the wind, so uh, Gary took us and so for the next year year and a half two years we worked for Orson whenever we could, hmm. and the rest of the time we uh, we were uh, working for Roger Corman we were cleanup crew for Corman, hmm. so along the way besides the you know physically being taught certain things. Uh, a lot of what I learned was those behind-the-scenes anecdotes that showed how things worked and how things worked well. I mean, for instance, one of the great ones is, for a second-unit director, is the fact that car chases are boring. Seeing two cars chase each other is boring. Seeing two guys running down the street after each other is boring. A chase sequence, an action sequence, has to project character. So uh, I was working for a, a, was it Raphael Nussbaum on a film, and I was directing second unit, and mm -hmm. he wanted this, this, this little old lady gets out of her car in her driveway with her bags, with her groceries, walks towards the door, and two thugs step out of her house. She drops the bag, she gets into the car, and he wanted me to back her up. She's got a big caddy. She wants to, he wanted me to back up and have her do a 180 and race off down the street. Mm. Now, that makes no sense, right? Because the car is not acting like the character. The car must act like the character. So instead of that, what we did was we got a wreck car, we got a junker car and a whole batch of trash cans. That's very interesting. The so car must when act she, like the character. So when she backs out, the caddy bangs all of the garbage tr cans across the street all over the place. Mm. And then she fishtails, sideswiping a car as she leaves. Now, that shows... So now the Cadillac has her character. She's terrified, she's not in control, and she's desperate. Mm. And the car acts that way. Mm -hmm. So, So... Obviously, this is a really great lesson if you're going to either write action sequences because you just don't write it. There's a chase scene. Yeah. Well, I immediately thought that there's a uh, you know a couple of scenes in the, the Terminator where the car acts like the Terminator. He crushes the toy truck. That's a, absolutely right all the way through. One of one of our guiding rules, which I you know obviously James Cameron understood, I understood, was that in a chase sequence. Or in an action sequence or in a fight, you have to continue having character as to what happens. Each move must be controlled by character. Mm. And in fact, if you want to, I can take it one step further. A love scene is boring. Two people pumping against each other is a boring thing. But if they're learning about each other and acting through what their characters are going through, then it's a fascinating scene. And mm. then it can be very sexy. I gotta ask how. So how did you get the? Um, so how did they inevitably hire you for the Terminator? 
Well, originally, when I was brought on, I actually was, um, as often will happen, uh, I was brought on as the second unit assistant director. And Glenn Wilder, who was a really well-known um, stunt coordinator, was going to direct. Uh, as we got closer, it turned out that, um, that this wasn't a Director's Guild film. Glenn couldn't do it. Hmm. Now, Glenn would go on to do, he did T2. Because he was at the time top top notch, but so I worked with Glenn in pre production and for one day of shooting, and then he had to leave. So then basically they asked me to take over, hmm. and because I did have experience, mm -hmm. um, and obviously uh, it was a well mapped out film. I got along great with the crew, the whole thing. So what so, were your your main set of goals here? Like in the time that you had before you guys started principal photography, how was this the pieces of the puzzle how were they going to fit into what james cameron was doing what well was this the, like like every film uh, basically you had the pre-production period in which um everyone brings their creativity to the ideas of the film now this was a script that everybody loved i mean it was a great script we knew it would be a great film mm. we knew that absolutely this this was nobody had ever seen anything like this before and the screenplay was brilliant um, so the trick was we would have meetings where everybody would, besides having a, you know, a, a table reading where with open books and we'd discuss every scene as we went through it, mm -hmm. um, was to plan how to do the film. So that during that period, this is the period in which, uh, you get, you draw preliminary ideas, the, you, you get storyboards, storyboards are changed, mm -hmm. um, if somebody thinks of a great way of doing an effect, it comes up. Mm -hmm. um, and the concepts of how you want to shoot it are pre-planned. Hmm. You know? So I'm assuming that uh, he, was, he was pointing all this stuff out with the storyboards and how you, know, you were going to make this work with the, with the uh, first unit? Right. Yeah. And uh, so as a stunt director, what... Uh, was this the first time you'd worked as 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 a second unit director? No, this was wasn't my first time as a second unit director. I had done this before. Uh, mm. I was not a stunt director. Mm. Um, that actually is a very very specific um, role. Often not often not the second unit. Yeah, director. I, I should have just said uh, uh, you know second unit. I don't know. I just right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, but that's, no, no. That's fine because yeah. uh, there are you know in fact one of uh, one of my drivers, uh, Diamond Farnsworth. One, you know a lot of stunt men go on to be stunt coordinators mm -hmm. and then often go on to be second unit directors. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that it is a progression. You know, one of the things that you'd, you'd previously mentioned I thought was interesting was the use of the, the women, the stunt women on the film, mm -hmm. where men actually double women. But on uh, Terminator, you, you had the women doing the women's stunts. Right. Yeah, we, this was, once again, this has a lot to do with uh, both uh, the Corman ethic, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. And also to, to do with the fact that we had Gail Ann Hurd as our producer. And mm -hmm. she was a woman very aware of women's place in the business. Mm -hmm. And so that when it came up to who were we going to use uh, for stunts was, um, yeah, let's not put guys in wigs, uh, was to actually bring in real stunt Yeah, women. even for the, um, the driving scenes. Right. You know, which typically I guess a guy would... Uh, 
well, there, I mean, many circumstances at that there. at that point, there were not a lot of I mean, there ha- literally from from the days of silent movies, there had been women stunt people. Yeah. Um, uh, and unfortunately, usually after uh, something like World War, guys try to take the jobs away from women when they come back from war. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, the idea of women and promoting women and developing women as stunt known stunt people. I mean, prior to this, uh, other than Sabrina Scharf, there were not a lot of famous female stunt people. Yeah, the only one I can think of it would be like Jeannie Epper, mm-hmm. Wonder Woman. Uh, right. That's like the only thing I, one I can think of. But who comes from a family of stunt people. Yeah, yeah, Whereas, she did. Yeah. 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 Uh, in fact, I... We may have had Nepper on on Terminator as well. Really? I, I have oh. over the over my years in Hollywood, I had worked with a number of the Eppers. You know the so um, while doing Second Unit, you were um, uh, you know you're just talking about some of the anecdotes, and you'd mentioned something about because we'd had earlier discussions about uh, one of the guys who was assisting you with a driving scene, and it got a little out of hand or something. Oh, it was oh. it was kind of it it was a close call. Well, no, that that actually that wonderful actor, uh, wonderful stunt guy named Gene Hartline. Oh yeah. And, uh, so we were mm-hmm. shooting the tunnel sequences, mm-hmm. uh, and the whole trick being um, there were two dangerous elements. One was that we had two semis that were going in opposite directions down the tunnel, and it had to give the appearance that both. Um, the heroes in the black truck mm-hmm. and the Terminator on his motorcycle totally were squeezed and just barely made it as these two trucks passed each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the point where, yeah, uh, we thought we were in the camera car behind and we literally thought we were not going to make it. We were going to crash. Mm-hmm. It was that tight. Wow. But um, yeah, one of uh, Gene, who is a, is a really good stunt guy, um, was our best uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger du- double, you know, burly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so Gene, uh, so we're, so at the other stunt was that we would throw out explosives. All right. So we had explosive charges on the ground and Gene had this idea that he wanted to put a small ramp and jump the motorcycle as it, as an explosion went off. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately this was, uh, during a, uh, during a practice run to show us how it worked is he did it, but unfortunately it flipped the motorcycle and Gene ended up falling on, on, on the street and was lying there. And we all rushed over to him. He's lying on his back and uh, he says, I can do it better. I can do it better. And he's trying to get up. And I literally, I sat down on his chest wow. and said, you know, call the ambulance just in case. Crazy. And so we called the ambulance and, uh, they came within three, they were there like in two and a half, three minutes. They were so fast. Off he went. And then about three hours later, I called the hospital and talked to his doctor. And I said, how is he? And he says, well, he's just about, he's, he's just about coming out of it. <laughs> he, had, he had been lying there ready to do the stunt again, but he was unconscious. Oh. <laughs> it was, and he was fine. It was, he did, no damage, no, you know, nothing. He was, he was well well prepped and, and yeah, yeah. guarded for for what happened so what were the major 
things that you had to accomplish? Like when you look at the whole movie and you think, okay, these are the scenes that we did that were this this was the major stuff we had to produce. Which which of those like? Um, well, obviously the okay. the highway sequence is the major element of, the, of what we did. I mean, we mm-hmm. did lots of other things, crushing the monster. You know, we did lots of uh, effects things and smaller things. But the biggest set piece that we did was um, the chase through the tunnel, yeah, onto the highway, um, flipping, uh, flipping the truck. Having Arnold get into the big uh, semi, the tanker truck, mm-hmm. come around and then smash the uh, the flipped. Black. So you did have first team stuff. Huh? The, the 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 main actors did were involved in your. Well, no, but remember that that often what would happen is that one night, for instance, a, a tech noir, for example, which which is the club comes in, in shoot, the movie, yeah, yeah. He shoots out the club. So anyway, what would happen is uh, they would build tech noir. Uh, first unit would move in, they would shoot, and I, my job was to be on the set, watching mm-hmm. what happens. Yeah, and so, so they would shoot the whole thing. It would take a night or two nights, whatever. And then the third, second or third night, I would come in with my crew, and it would be extra. Uh, it would be the extras and the stunt doubles. Mm-hmm. So no main, no main characters would be there. And then what we would do is we would shoot the insert pieces of everything that happens. Hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, Kyrie's like flying over the bar. Well, no, is that, that was first. Uh, actually, I, I can't remember if that was a double or yeah. or they did that. Some of this they did on first unit. Um, yeah. So they could do stuff that wasn't dangerous on first unit, but still had effects. Like you could do you know small bullet hits mm-hmm. um, with first unit people. Yeah, but for instance, uh, blowing uh, Arnold through through the glass at the at the b- front of the building. Yeah, yeah, where he now, hits his back and wakes up. Great right. scene. So, so or for for a scene like that, and that's yeah. Gene Hartline, I believe. Um, what it would, what we would do is they would literally uh, that glass piece of glass had explosives at all four corners, mm-hmm. and so what happened was the stuntman is is literally running backwards and just as he's about to hit it they would blow the glass Mm -hmm. so that he actually doesn't break the glass he actually is going through broken glass as he falls out into the street Hmm. so we should shoot that second unit Mm -hmm. and then but and then i i think on that one i can't remember whether we shot that and then they shot arnold or they put glass down and but i think we actually shot that first Hmm. And sometimes we'd work on the same place the same night doing different things. Yeah, yeah. Hey, can I switch gears for a sec? Sure. Because I uh, let some of my friends on Facebook know that we were going to be having this conversation. And uh, they submitted some questions. And uh, the laptop is about to die. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> uh, Well, we could also get power so for it if we now would might be a good time to uh, ask the questions before they disappear from the screen. Uh, so let's go with it. Uh, Tiger Kennedy Cosmos asks, Schwarzenegger's, fir- Schwarzenegger's film entrance in The Terminator is possibly the greatest of all time. The next films in the fan- franchise play with this entrance. Did the production realize at the time it would be so, so iconic? Were there any other versions on how to introduce Schwarzenegger as the T- T-800? Uh, no, I, I, let's put it this way. This is Schwarzenegger. Um, 
he has he had an incredible physique, which he actually slightly changed to do this movie. How so? Uh, he went from from uh, he went from Tarzan Tawny to Fireplug Terminator. Mm-hmm. He literally, you know, this is a man who literally, if he wants to, he can he can say, "Well, I'm going to change. I'm going to make myself stouter and the whole thing." <laughs> Which often is why people don't know how, just how tall he is, because he, if he gets, if he builds his his uh, frame out, he mm-hmm. looks shorter. If he builds it, you know, obviously the sleeker he is, the taller he looks. Hmm. But anyway, um, <clears throat> no, because uh, I mean, here you have this, you know, epitome of physical beauty. Why not give him this magnificent, you know, arrival? Hmm. Um, why not go for the nude aspect? Remember, once again, we had a female producer who said, there are things that women would like to see. <laughs> <laughs> Thought of it that way. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Come on. Yeah, both of these guys appear nude. Yeah. Which also mm-hmm. has to, you know, once again, it was, you know, the, one of the many ideas of time travel. Yeah, it is, it is a pretty iconic shot. Yeah. Know, when the, the, you know, coming out of the time travel. John Humphrey asks, uh, knowing that James Cameron plans shots well in advance, did second unit have storyboards to follow or did you guys have flexibility in what you shot? Well, we had storyboards. There were obviously, no matter what you do, especially with the chase sequence and stuff like that, you do have some flexibility. But once Mm -hmm. again, you're really trying to serve the story. Yeah. I mean, it's not like nobody goes in to try to re-be, oh, I need to be creative. I mean, but were there times that like, ah, well, you know, we caught something kind of interesting here. And then oh, you no, bring, that you happens. To James you know, once Cameron, again, he's like, I don't, what do you think? Oh, well, work? no, I mean, literally we would, you know, uh, a, a car comes slipping out and the, the stunt guy slightly misses and he slams three cars. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we're leaving it in the movie. Right, so so we we would build that in because mm-hmm. then second unit the next time they shot like Reese or, or in a car is they would imitate that hit that that was second unit had created. Hmm. So there were moments like that. Otherwise, yeah. no, you pretty much, you know, the script is right. You stick to the script. Yeah, and and if you pre-plan a great um, chase sequence, you don't want to change it. Did Cameron ever get pissed off about what the second unit produced, or was it all? Did it pretty much work? I have no idea. Like, I, I that that I you know. Tell I'm, you. I'm like, I think of James Cameron. I think like eh, he kind of has a temper. I assume, you know, like well, he, you know, he, if it, if you if you're not doing something right, it doesn't work. I mean, did he? Ever we never. I I don't. He he never expressed any dissatisfaction with what he was getting from second unit. Mm. Norm Schrager, Norm Schrager writes, I remember learning that many of the sets were, re, were reused and that Cameron's team was masterful at dressing sets to look completely different. What kind of low-budget measures do you recall using during the making of the film? Boy. Um, it was just something that made you think like, wow, we're really scratching. Not really. Head. No, I mean. It, we're really penny-pinching here. Well, no, I'm probably the best. You know, my favorite pen, penny pinch was... Um, so we're all downstairs. So we have this abandoned building and we build yeah. a police station into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're <laughs> blowing walls out. And oh, such a hits, terrific scene. Thing. My favorite scene and, in the movie, actually. Um, as far as money crunches, uh-oh, we're missing a set. So, so we, the, uh, the uh, Fleabag Hotel where the Terminator was staying, mm-hmm. um, they had used, but they hadn't shot the bathroom scene. 
Mm-hmm. So literally, guys run upstairs to the second floor of this abandoned building where we have the police station, and they build the bathroom. Yeah. So while they're shooting downstairs, we're shooting uh, the the Terminator taking his eyeball out and covering it with the shades. Sure, sure. So that's the kind of thing where on the run, they need to invent that. You know, that reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, like, I guess from time to time you did get some input from the bosses saying, can you do this? Can you do this? And by bosses, I mean like producers of the film saying well, that, you know, yeah, a little no, more of well, this. Okay, so which yeah, I, I can tell the, you that story. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a fun story. Because uh, during the bathroom scene, uh, obviously... Um, our pro- the production company was was mm-hmm. Hemdale. I, I should I should explain for listeners. This is the scene where the T eight hundred is operating on his eye. Right. Yeah. So, he okay. he. Yeah. His eye is damaged, so he just removes it. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry. But anyway, so uh, yeah. So we as we were getting ready, because obviously every morning we would go to dailies to see what we had shot, and, and often the uh, pro- the exec producers were there. And with the bathroom scene, they really wanted, um, when the X-Acto knife goes into Terminator's eye, they wanted blood. And, um, and basically, the truth is, there's no blood in the eye. <laughs> so, um, but they really wanted it. And uh, so when we, were, when we were shooting it, so we're all there. And this is, you know, this is a time when, when Arnold was on second unit. So I had Arnold. Because we needed Arnold's hands to to actually run to to show because there there was nobody who had Arnold's hands Mm -hmm. and so we had the dummy head and Arnold literally standing behind the head in fact uh, I have a sample of uh, of the storyboard for this yeah Um, so we had so Arnold's behind it and so to make to give the idea that there was blood when he pokes the exacto knife into his eye Mm -hmm. to to get blood there was we literally one of the special effects guys was sitting underneath the tripod of the camera with a big squeeze bottle of blood and this long, thin uh, plastic um, cable that went up Arnold's arm along the X-Acto knife so that as he poked, he could punch out some blood. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was a very, very thin tube. And Hollywood blood has syrup in it. So I think it was Shane was underneath. So he's sitting there squeezing the bottle. Arnold's got the X-Acto knife and he's approaching the eyeball. And uh, which you can see in the uh, uh, mirror in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody and so everybody's going, Shane, blood, blood, push, more blood. And you can see slowly on this like five foot tube. Mm-hmm. The blood is very slow. It's about it's about two feet up, and we're shooting. It's just not going anywhere. And so finally, at the last minute, Shane squeezes hard. The top of the bottle explodes <laughs> off of off of the jar, mm-hmm. and blood just pours up into the camera and down onto everybody's shoes. So that was the day the the, the camera dripped blood. <laughs> So the blood never yeah, actually. Yeah. Now the truth is that we had never really wanted that, you know, because it, it would have been totally unrealistic. Sure, sure. Uh, so what we ended up doing was, when we did the downward shot into the um, into the sink, we took a dropper and dropped some blood in there, 
um, which satisfied everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what's funny though is I think like that outtake exists somewhere. It, do you think they they must have printed it? Uh, well, they may have printed it. Yeah. Obviously, the in a case like this, that with that film, probably the negative still exists, yeah. which is how you do your deleted. I scenes. think one of the neat things about being on the cruise, if you did, if you were allowed to see the uh, the dailies, that was some really funny. <coughs> And sometimes there's some, there's some really funny stuff. I, you know, I recall when working on Ninja Turtles, some of the outtakes, some of the second, third, fourth takes with the Ninja Turtles are just freaking hysterical. <laughs> so, uh, the, so what I'm thinking is like, so you're watching the dailies. Is there any stuff you remember from the dailies that were like, that was pretty damn funny? Well, that actually, that, that one actually had um, Arnold telling jokes. Really? About, where's the you know about the blood? He yeah, thought yeah. that he thought this whole thing was very funny, and he is actually a very funny guy. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember anything else from the dailies that you, that nobody else would ever have seen? That not you're like, really. holy shit, that's not really. Funny. We were really yeah. sort of dedicated to what we were doing, and yeah. and for second unit, we're less likely to get like a blooper. Yeah, you know, with second unit that we're and when I went to dailies, I was far more interested in what second unit was doing. Mm -hmm. Unless it was material that we were going to match later, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, like bloopers in terms of like you know guns failing or not having an explosive go off or something. Well, I mean, we did learn that an Uzi is a um, literally if you want to an Uzi, it doesn't last very long. If you start using an Uzi, you can throw it away because it'll mm. you know, it comes apart after a short period. And of time. I think this is his gun of choice in the film. It's yeah, in fact, we yeah. had this was actually one of our um, product placements was Uzi. You had a gun manufacturer give you the guns as product placement. In fact, we had an Israeli expert from Uzi on set at all times. Really nice guy. In fact, and everybody on everybody on the crew has their little Uzi uh, button. Um, I don't know if that would fly today. Well, no, it no, <laughs> it does. Like, no, let's like put it this way: Winchester it's, rifles. No, no, but it absolutely it flies your, uh, today. I mean, it's not like uh, Dirty Harry films were had sponsorship from yeah. the gun makers. I just my 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 knee jerk reaction was uh, like people, the morality of it. Oh, you can't have these gun people sponsoring your guns in your movie. Oh, well, but just. You know, I they, they, yeah. Why not? Yeah. I mean, let's put it this way: we also had uh, the two trucks in the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. one's Corbell, the other's Levi's. Hmm. So we all had Levi's, and we all drank Corbell. Somewhere, I actually, I still have uh, um, Gail and James signed Corbell bottles for everybody, and I have one. You know, to Jean Paul, thank you from <laughs> Gail and Jim. And I still have the bottle of Corbell. So you guys had Uzi buttons? And so we had Uzi buttons, you know, the little, um, you know, I forget, uh, cloisette ones. Beautiful <laughs> little buttons. Uh, so a lot, you know, um, we had, you know, everything. You know, we had a lot of sponsors. My favorite sponsor, obviously, was uh, Gargoyle Glasses. Really? Yeah. In fact, the whole, when we were shooting the, uh, the whole scene in the uh, bathroom, you know, the Fleabag Hotel mm -hmm. bathroom, the most important shot was the hand of Arnold taking the glasses off of the counter and putting them on. Hmm. And yeah. the effect for gargoyle glasses that year was amazing. They tripled. It's or a big whatever. part of the marketing of the film. Absolutely. So, well, it's also uh, yeah. base leather. If you yeah. if you watch um, the bullet hits on the on the black truck, 
you will see Bates Leather stickers. That there are stickers that, that, that signal who were some of the sponsors of the film. Or, was, or uh, advertising tie-ins. Yeah, yeah. Was uh, was was uh, Reese's wardrobe also uh, a sponsor? I'm not sure. Mm, that I don't sneakers. know. Unless, uh, no, I know that Arnold's jacket was a Bates leather jacket. Yeah. And that was important. Yeah. So. Uh, you had previously mentioned, uh, so you guys filmed at a jelly factory. Yeah, actually, which, it's a current uh, Kern, Kern, Kern's jelly. Yeah, uh, was the end for the end of the movie. What was that experience like? Was was it an operating factory at the time? Well, it was. Well, we should use it at night, um, and either which is probably expensive because they probably had to pay um, to have a shift not work. And why would they have a hydraulic press? Well, they didn't. So the mechanical arms, yeah, and the hydraulic press were were brought in, whereas the the gangways. Um, and the conveyor belts were already there, mm. so that they were practical. But uh, we brought in the uh, mechanical arms, uh, and we brought in the press. Mm -hmm. What do you call about working with Stan Winston's crew? Oh, was, was he Stan Winston at the time? He was. was I don't think he was ever guys. Stan Winston. Stan Winston is just, was one of the nicest, friendliest, sweetest guys you could ever work with. He just was a sweetheart, mm. um, and. This was early in his his career in a way, so this was yeah. a, definitely a breakout thing for him. But he was, I mean, he was already had a really good um, shop, the whole deal. So um, obviously, he was as as a effects guy, he was very advanced. Was he very hands on during the actual principal photography? Oh, absolutely! Oh, all the time, I mean, yeah. absolutely. He the one thing he didn't yet know, he hadn't done. He had not done a lot of directing, so obviously he, he, my crew, and I would often show up when when he was working on sets. Mm -hmm. I never worked in the shops with him, or you know, off on uh, effects studio shots. Mm -hmm. But when he was when he was working, when he was shooting either with me or he had a night which was specifically effects shots, often I would show up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you um, ever get in touch with any of the guys that used to work on the film, or does everybody just kind of like um, go their ways? I mean, the Terminator was kind of a thing, as opposed to the other films you worked on. Yeah, well, like, I mean, a couple of uh, a couple yeah. of the people have passed on that I was really good friends with. They were older than I was, mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, my assistant director and I still keep in contact uh, occasionally. So, I mean, I still a few of the people I still, mm. you know. You know, when uh, when the conversation of the Terminator comes up, as as it randomly does with people who talk about movies a lot, uh, what do you get to say, and what are people's reactions like when they say when they hear that you were uh, involved with the making of it? Well, I'm I, I think my favorite is the, the the fact that so many women love the movie <laughs> is that yeah. I'm always surprised when some some woman says, "Oh, I love that movie. It works mm -hmm. on it." Um, yeah, I still still get that reaction too, and not just just the assumption that I didn't think. She would like this, but she loves this. Nah, right. Maybe I'm behind in the times. I don't know. No, no. Yeah. Uh, you know. We, once again, as I said, there. I mean, there's a great love scene. There's a great love story. There's a, a, a major female heroic character with a great arc. Mm. Um, and there's uh, two nude guys at the beginning who look very sexy. <laughs> so definitely women, you know, the, besides the fact that women do enjoy action right. movies. Right, right. And right. women do love being scared by horror and it's good sci-fi, and there's tons of women who like sci-fi. Mm. Um, 
this was a film that definitely could yeah. please any woman who went went to see it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was not macho driven. It was, you know, it was it was not designed to be a fanboy movie. So inevitably it is, but it's also a fangirl movie. Right. What do you think of Terminator Genesis? Like you did this. Wait, you know, this Terminator, Genesis this, this is Terminator movie. One, right? Yeah, the Genesis is Genesis is the newest one. Like right. Well, from what from what you worked on compared to what this became, I really well. Let's put the, it this way: I enjoyed Genesis. It yeah. was a smart movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in between, you know, T two is an action movie to be an action movie. Mm-hmm. Then it sort of lost everything, and I didn't care for anything until Genesis. And Genesis is a is a wonderful play on the time, um, the time travel. Uh, twist. Yeah, and it seemed to capture the that that you know that that mise en scene of the '80s, whatever that is. And you, you know, when it goes back to '84, you feel it. Well, no, like, it was oh, the like trick is it, it was a smart movie. To get it, you know, <laughs> is that a lot of movies today aren't smart. Yeah, you know, they're they're filled with people doing stuff and and explosions and car crashes, but mm-hmm. they're not smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Genesis is not just fighting the bad guy. It's smarter. Well, this is good. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time to talk, JP. Oh, my Appreciate pleasure. It. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can visit us online at DiaboLeagueMagazine.com. And, of course, don't forget to pick up the latest issue of Diabolique Magazine. Always a lot of great stuff there. If you have any comments about the Diabolique webcast, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Or if you have any questions about the Terminator, send me an email. I'll get them to JP, and uh, you know maybe JP will answer the questions on a future episode. So, you know, anything. Send us an email. I'm at steve at horrorunlimited.com. I'm Stephen Slaughterhead. Until next time, so long, everyone. Thank you.